Well, I'm sure some of you might have heard the, the saying that all, all of our life preaches a sermon. And if, if that's the case, then Jesus' life is the only sermon that could bring anybody good news. Jesus' life is the only sermon that could bring life to dead bone sinners like us. And that is the point of Christianity. That is Christianity. Christianity at its core is not this resource to make us feel better about our life. Christianity at its core isn't some resource that might help us have a religious lifestyle. Christianity at its core is not a resource for morality. At its core, Christianity is a dramatic story. It's news that Christ Jesus came to earth, that Christ Jesus was publicly crucified for our sins. He lay dead in a tomb, and three days later, he got up from the grave. And in fact, no other religion on planet earth makes its validity based upon a historical fact. Christianity, what I just described to you, is historical fact, but it's also saving truth. It's objective reality. It's doctrine. Jesus was born. He lived. He died. All that is history. But Jesus being our substitute, how he fulfilled the law for us, how he was cursed for us, how he died for us, how he rose from the dead for our justification, for our sanctification, and for redemption, that is doctrine. And that saves us. The rub is that none of that means anything if you don't believe that you're a sinner under the wrath of God. If you do, that's everything. And guess what? It's all you need. Jesus is enough. But here's the thing. The gospel, all of that even sounds strange to us this side of heaven. I think Michael Horton, a theologian and scholar and minister, he says it very honestly, and he says it really well in a book when he says, to the extent that we remain pilgrims in this life, the gospel will remain strange even to us. Until the day we die, we will struggle to believe the bad news and the good news that God announces to us. God announces, we are sinners. We're doomed. And the Lord has come to save us from our sins. And everything, our flesh, our mind, the world, Satan, it all fights against God's announcement that we're sinners and that Jesus is our Savior. And so all of this, hopefully to kind of whet our appetites, on December 25th, Christmas morning, we're going to consider who God is and what He has done. And with God's help, uh, maybe we'll understand more deeply what it means that Christ was born for us. With that said, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. If you're not already there, just go ahead and flip there. We're, we're just reading one verse this morning, and that verse will be on the screen. So if you don't want to uh, flip there, that's fine. But I'll give us just a second. My outline today is I have three parts. We're going to talk about God and creation. That's the larger part of the message this morning of the sermon. And then part two is to just consider how God became flesh. 
And then part three is just two closing reflections for our time. So I'll read our verse, John chapter 1, verse 14, and we'll dive in. This is the Word of God, His holy inspired Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we praise God for His Word this morning. It is it is absolutely astonishing that God would have a word for us and that it would be full of grace and truth. But that is true this morning. And so part one, let's consider God in creation. Look with me at verse 14, and it begins to say the word. Well, who and, and what is the word? Verse one in, in the Gospel of John says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And guess what? The word was God. The word is God. But, but maybe more specifically, we should understand well, well, what does that mean that the word is God? So most of the gospel accounts, they might begin with the genealogy of Jesus. They might begin with just the birth narrative of Jesus. John, to talk about Christ coming to earth, begins with before creation altogether. He goes back to Genesis 1. And let me read this for us. In the beginning was God. God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, with His word, let there be. So right there, before creation, we've got God the Father, we've got God the Spirit, we've got God the Son. So who is this word? It is the second person of the Trinity. It is God the Son. It's God Himself. And so, number one in part two, I have this truth for us. The Word is God. The Word is God. And so what's being communicated when we say in the beginning is, is this. That this is before the beginning altogether. We're thinking about origin. We're thinking about first causes. There was nothing and then there's something. Uh, how did that happen? Because God has always existed. So before the beginning, there's God. He is ultimate. He's, he's everything. He's self-existent. He needs nothing to exist. Psalm 90 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And to continue to exist, God needs nothing. He reveals Himself to to Moses in Exodus, he says, well, who should I, Moses asked, who should I say sent me? He says, tell them I am. We heard last night about, uh, Justin mentioned in the Christmas Eve service, your kids might ask you, where did God come from? Who created God? No one created God. He didn't come from anywhere. He's always just been there. He is. This is who we're talking about when we say the word, the word. John 1, 4, even uh, in our text today, in him was life and the light was the light of men. And the life we mean is not just, we're not talking about eternal life right here. We're talking about existence. Just in him was life, the very being, like just existence, being. That exists within God himself. And the very being of God is the very being of God the Son. The word is God. And this is why even in our verse today, the word became flesh dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. 
glory as of the only Son from the Father. He reveals the Father's glory because He he is in union with the Father. One. God is one. So this is God. So just continuing real quick. As we think about the Word, who is Jesus, and how the Word is God. I want to to help us think further of why this might be important because, you know, the word used there, logos, the first time that was ever used, the word logos, was used by a Greek philosopher named Herculitus. And he used the word to designate or or this this divine reason or the divine plan uh, behind everything, behind all of existence. And so John picks up on this word and he uses it to describe Christ. He uses it to denote the essential word of God, Jesus Christ. And he describes how the personal wisdom and power behind all things is Christ, the eternal son of God. He is the minister in creation and the government in all of the universe. He's the image of the invisible God in all of reality and all of existence is his. For by him, all things were created, whether we see it or not. All things were created through the word and for him. He is before all things and all things hold together in him. That's Colossians 1. So God is set apart from creation. There's nothing that exists apart from him. And I bring all this to your attention because God uses, I mean, John uses that word logos. Referencing the wisdom and the power of God behind all of creation, behind all of reality. But he uses it in a way that blows Greek philosophers' mind. Why? Because he uses it in a way where this this personal wisdom and essence of deity becoming a man and is personally rejected by humankind. The the very God that, that that I just described to you becomes a man, is what John says. The word, the essential wisdom and power behind all of existence becomes a man and is rejected. By his creation. To Greek philosophers, they're like, you are insane. Are you telling me that we can reject God? If the God that you're describing exists, you're telling me he became a man and was rejected? This is foolishness. This is foolishness. It's what verse 9 and 10 tells us. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Is this not what's wrong with our world? So God is willing to create and to be near his creation, but they reject him. What kind of God is that? What kind of logos is that? How could that even be allowed? Because truth number two, under God and creation The heart of God is revealed to us in his purpose for creation. The heart of God is revealed to us in his purpose for creation. Because before time began, folks, God planned salvation. A covenant was made between the Godhead, between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And there was a plan that God the Son would die for his people. You might be asking yourself, what, why? Why would it be that way? They might be asking, well, I understand that, but like, why wouldn't God just save everybody? Look, we don't have the, the understanding. We don't have the equipment to even understand enough to even ask a question like that. Here's a better question. Why would God plan to die 
If you're God and you're going to create, are you going to die for your creation? None of us have, would say yes to that question. But this is the unsearchable wisdom and knowledge of our God. From beginning of time, he says, I will show my love, my eternal love. I will die for my people. And so this is the point of existence. God saving his people. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestines us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, which began way before creation ever started. All right, Second Timothy 1 9. God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Jesus before the ages began. First Peter 1.20 even says he f- was foreknown, speaking of Christ, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. God creates in his everlasting love and his heart is to redeem. This is our God. He doesn't just create and step out of the way. The purpose of creation is that God wants to redeem. And God does not fail. He creates and then he enters a relationship with his people. And he enters that relationship knowing and ordaining that they would be tempted and reject him. We know this because this Jesus that we've talked about today and sung about today. He was tasked with doing with 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 doing what Adam failed to do. God entered a relationship with his people and said, Adam, you'll represent all of humanity. If you can just love me by not doing this and by doing this, you will usher in all of existence into blessedness forever. Adam has a free will. He can love or disobey. He's got the God of the universe telling him what's good for him. And he says, no, I'm going to go my own way. And there goes humanity ever since the fall. And so now we have a human debt. We've been plunged into ruin. And we have a human debt that only God can pay. Because we need perfection. We need holiness. But we're ruined. We inherited corruption. And the debt that we owe is a human debt. It's a human debt. I need to do what God requires of me. We all need to do that. But we can't. We're fallen. We're we're dead in our sins. And the whole point is that Jesus would come. So in creating everything and allowing and ordaining the fall, what we see is that God wants his people to receive from him, not work for his love. But we've all rejected his love. And we can't please God and we're doomed. And so really God probably should have just balled up creation like a piece of paper and just set it on fire. But he didn't do that. Remembering the purpose of creation, he promises that one will come. He says, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix this. One will come. He will be born. He will save his people from their sins. And because in Adam, we have lost our ability to keep the law 
we need someone who will. We need someone who's going to represent us and keep the law because we're all doomed. We need someone who could pay a God-sized debt that if I had to pay, it would mean eternally dying and being separated from God. We need a lot. That's, I mean, that's a big ask. That's a big need. And God said He's going to supply it. And so do you see, folks, how God has always desired to be with His people? Even in making creation, it was to be with them. And just in the very beginning of creation. And so as, as redemptive history, as world history starts to unfold, God is working out this redemption. God is working out redemption in world history in such a way that this one who would save his people would come. And so although his people cannot dwell with him because sinners can't approach such a, such a glorious light. Sinners like us can't be with God. So how is he going to unfold redemption if, if we can't even be with him? Well, God made a way to be among his people and bring about their salvation. For it's always been his heart. So number three under part one, redemptive history shows us that God desires to dwell with his people. Redemptive history shows us that God desires to dwell with his people. And this is what I mean. As God starts to work with his people, he gives the law. Here's what you need to be. And he also gives the sacrificial system because nobody can be perfect. So there's there's truth and there's grace just in uh, giving of the law and the sacrificial system. And here's how he dwells with his people, though. Part of that sacrificial system was was a tabernacle. So in the book of Exodus, we find instructions for the building of this tabernacle where God's going to have his spirit dwell with his people. So this tabernacle was basically like this portable palace for God. And this, this was the place in which God would dwell among his people as they traveled towards the promised land, as they traveled towards Canaan. This is where sacrifices for sins were accepted so that God would be among his people. And later on, God's people would reach the promised land and, uh, and that permanent version of the tabernacle would become the temple. Now, I'm not going to take us through all the instructions of this tabernacle, but I want you to notice something. When we're speaking about God wanting to be with his people and to dwell with his people. And he creates this tabernacle. And so the first area was like this. You could consider it like a lobby. And you go into the second area of the tabernacle. That's the holy place. And then you go into the most holy place, which is this third area of the tabernacle. And this most holy place contained the Ark of the Covenant. Right. It was this this wooden chest. It was overlaid with gold. It contained the stone tablets on which God had written the law. Basically, it's it's who God. The law comes from God. This is how perfect and righteous I am. And it's going to sit in the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, which is why uh, sacrifices had to be made for a priest to even enter there. Because it's about perfection. It's about holiness, because that is who God is. And all of that is good. And, and the reason that we have so much fear with that is not because God is the problem. It's because we're the problem. And so anyway, the appearance of the ark was like this throne. And more specifically, it's like a footstool of a throne. And so the tabernacle, the tabernacle was this earthly meeting place where God stooped to meet with his people. As the Lord says in the book of Isaiah, heaven is my throne. 
and the earth is my footstool. I bring this up to your attention because in our verse today, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt is literally tabernacled. The Lord became flesh and tabernacled with us. Here's what that means. Jesus left the glories of heaven in tabernacles on earth. Jesus as the tabernacle is the place where God descends to meet his people finally. So let's move now to part two. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus is the true dwelling place of God. Later on in in John chapter 2, Jesus calls himself the temple. And now the Pharisees have used this temple to do all kinds of things, but mostly to promote their own righteousness. Mostly to promote their own righteousness. They've turned the temple into something crazy. And zeal for for the Lord's house is, is upon Christ. He goes in, he's flipping tables, he's destroying the place because they've turned it into something it's not. It's no longer about God's people being able to dwell with God through sacrifices, through 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 the shedding of blood to be able to, to meet with God. It's no longer about that. And so Jesus calls himself the temple and he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And they're thinking, what are you talking about? It took us 46 years to build this temple. What do you mean? He's saying, because I am the temple. I am where God dwells now. I am where God comes to meet his people. And so Jesus descends from God and tabernacles on earth. And so what has happened is that God has come to meet his people face to face in Jesus. So when we say Emmanuel, God with us, God himself has put on flesh to stare his people in the face, eye to eye. This is incredible. This is this is insane from our perspective. Folks who would have never stepped into the temple to try to go be with God. God himself in the flesh is in their home. Communing with them. Lost and blind sinners. Jesus is in their home. Opening their eyes to see the grace and the truth of God. He comes to us. God comes to us. Not to give us a second chance, not to just show us what we should have done, not to just give us a do over. He came to save us from our sins. The very God who spoke existence into being is the God who came into that existence to save us from our sins. So if we're going to meet the living God. The only place we can go to meet the living God is through Jesus Christ. We can't go through our law keeping. We can't hope we can't get to heaven and and hope we've done good enough. It won't be good enough. You can't be good enough. There won't be any confidence in our good works that maybe we have have. uh, okay, we've we've trusted in Christ, but uh, it's not just him. It's him and me. We're both doing this together. It won't be that either. It won't be our zeal for God. It won't be how much we've prayed. It won't be how much we've read. It won't be how much we've attended church. What it will be is Christ Jesus for us. Nothing else will do. 
And so just as the high priest would enter the most holy place, again, only one time a year, we now enter the presence of God face to face through Jesus. This is why Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. So this ginormous curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, one person, the high priest, could go in one time a year Jesus, because of His work on our behalf, has made a way where we have confidence and eternal access to God Himself forever with no fear. With no fear. And this all begins with the God-man. This all begins with the Word putting on flesh. So number two, the Word becomes flesh under part two. This eternal transcendent, imminent God, the King of heaven and earth, the King of heaven and earth became a baby. The one who made the stars put himself in creation and slept under them. The one who made the skies laid helpless in Mary's arms. The heart of God in an infant's chest. Yet none of these things could cloak His divinity. God eternal has become a child. Why? Because of the eternal love of God. The King of glory enters our world, except the crown He's given is a crown of thorns. He has made nothing to raise us poor and helpless sinners. The Creator is wrapped in our mortal frames as the promised seed the blessing of the nations. The Lion of Judah lays in a manger. Why? Because we need righteousness and we have none. He lived for us. Because we got a penalty for our sin that it would take eternity to pay. He paid it. Emptying himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, the king of glory. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We read it today because we share in flesh and blood and that penalty is a flesh and blood penalty that we owe. The Lord Jesus put on flesh and blood to deliver us. All of us, slaves to eternal death, we were chained to it, slaves to it, had no other option except for God to leave heaven and break those chains by becoming a man. And He did that. His name is Jesus. He will save His people from their sins. He fulfilled the law. All righteousness fulfilled. Have you done it? Absolutely not. He has was forsaken by God. Why? So that you will never have to fear God forsaking you. Never, ever, ever. I was thinking this morning, the shepherds are in the field and angels show up with good news from God. And I'm thinking, man, just, just as a wretched sinner, I know all the prophets pointed to this, but just imagine God sending a message through angels and angels show up and they say, we got a message from God. We would be filled with fear. I am a sinner. God's got nothing good to say to me. Christ born for us. 
If God said, I'm going to come and die for you. We have peace. Peace is ours because God has good news for us. His name is Jesus. And he died and he rose three days later. He rose three days later and he ascended to the father. And right now he's beside the father as our high priest praying for us, interceding for us. We have a priest that will never die, folks. Interceding for us even now. And it's in him. We imagine him beside the father right now. We are in him face to face with God without fear of condemnation. Without fear of condemnation. We are face to face with God because Christ Jesus put on flesh and tabernacled with us, dwelt with us. This is good news, folks. This is good news. And I'm happy that regardless of how we feel about it on Christmas Day or Easter morning, doesn't matter. It's true. It's true. And we have been given faith to believe that regardless of how distracted we feel, regardless of what we feel. Christ is enough. And so I want to close our time with two reflections. I want to close our time with two reflections. Number one is uh, don't believe what the world tells you about reality. Don't believe what the world tells you about reality. The world says that reality is impersonal. Our world thinks that the supreme ultimate behind all of reality is just is just impersonal. It's nothingness. It's vanity, ultimately. And so that's why gender wouldn't matter. That's why, you know, marriage doesn't matter. That's why so much just doesn't matter. There's nothing behind any of it. No, the organizing essence behind all things is a personal creator. And there's this tendency to think that, it, well, if we don't believe this, what I've presented to you today, that we just believe nothing. No, if you don't believe this, you don't believe nothing. You believe anything. You'll believe everything and not even know it. Because we are slaves to the lies. Of this world. Satan rules this world. And, and, and we are slaves to him at birth. And we believe what we want to believe. We believe what other people tell us. We believe anything and everything. We believe all of that. But we won't believe God. There is a personal creator. Reality is personal. There's a purpose to existence. Redemption. Jesus is coming back. And we're ultimately insane when we ignore this reality. And how God desires to be with his people. How he came to earth. For what? To condemn us? No, to save us. He is truth. And he is grace. And so the tendency to hear some of this stuff is like, look, all this sounds good, but, but it ain't, it's, it's probably not true for me. It sounds real good, but it's probably not true for me. You're right. It is too good for you. And it's too good for me. It's too good for all of us. But he calls us out anyway. Lord Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. And I lay down my life for the sheep. God calls out, here's a savior. Receive him. Why would you perish? Receive him. And the comfort is that Jesus knows his own. And his own know him. 
and they will listen to his voice. There's going to be one flock and there's going to be one shepherd. And all this is true because God desires to dwell with his people. It's who he is. Although we rejected him, he came to us. So you want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus. Put on flesh for you. And finally, this last reflection. I just simply called it Christ for you. Christ for you. It's just always good when you're having shady thoughts about God to go to Jesus. Jesus reveals that God's heart is drawn to the battered and the broken. No life story can make Jesus blush. No amount of depression, anxiety, no amount of, of foolish living can make him blush that he is not enough to save you or to keep on saving you. Your sin cannot repel such a compassionate Savior. Religious people like us tend to forget this. And we're, and we're shocked at how Jesus comes to, to save the sick, not the religious. And he didn't come so that we might show him that he made a good choice. He came to give us life and life abundantly. Freedom from our foolishness. Freedom from the idea that reality is not personal. Freedom from our foolish selves. Freedom from the lies of this world. He came to give us real life. Number one, real life in Him. And number two, that we might live according to His law and stop hating it. The whole plan of history is, is not God asking people uh, to, to do more things for Him. It's, it's God asking His people to trust Him. To look to His Savior, not their works. Jesus came to us. And, and He welcomes sinners like you and like me. He doesn't scoff at them. And here's again the, 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 the beautiful thought in this when we're considering God. God planned for it to be this way. Everything I'm saying is not like a, we've messed this up and so God fixed it. God planned it. Existence is, is, is existence because God planned to die for his people. And if all this is true, do not fear. Go to your heavenly father. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. For our sin, we deserve death. But in a shocking reversal, we're given salvation. Because Christ was born for us. Let's pray.